Hello and welcome to another episode of Memo by Gaia Legal, a podcast where we talk about life, law, and how to live in better relationship with the earth, beginning with ourselves, our families, and our estate, business, and tax strategies. So today um, we are entering a new series, which is going to be all about charitable giving and how we are giving and receiving in this world. So giving and receiving um, downloads from God, source, the universe, and how we're taking that and putting it into, infusing it into our businesses. But then also, how are we giving um, between us and or other organizations, us and the collective, and what estate tax and business strategies are there to kind of house all these things. So this topic is about, I think, nine or 10 episodes, nine, I think. Um, don't quote me, but it's about two weeks. So we'll be going through lots of different things in the next two weeks. Today, starting out with just generally, what is charitable giving, the pros and cons of charitable giving. There is a shadow side to charitable giving, and I want to talk about that a little bit where we begin today. And then just knowing the difference I have pulled up on the screen, the difference between nonprofit, not-for-profit, and for-profit. And then we'll end with going to irs.gov so you can see where you can access more information if you're interested. And the reason why I am covering this topic first is once we have our vision and we have our goals, we have to really narrow down what type of organization we want to form. Um, they usually all form in the same business entity, usually an LLC. You know, It obviously depends on the specific facts of your situation. But if you're coming from a side gig to a small business, transforming that into a small business Usually it's an LLC. And um, from that, we have to determine what is our tax strategy going to be depending on who we serve. So that's the goal for today. The first thing I want to start with is what is charitable giving and what are the shadows of charitable giving? So I actually have my notes here. So if I'm looking away, it's because I'm going to my notes. Um, so I don't ramble because <laughs> I could do that. It helps me stay on point. So charity, um, business and charity, there has been a historical difference in the usage of the term. Business often implies a for-profit activity, where a charity implies a not-for-profit or non-profit activity. And as you see on the screen, non-profit and not-for-profit are two very different things when it comes to the tax code. Um, so there's a concept around charity that automatically assumes when you're charitable, you are giving an unselfish service to others because you're a church or religious organization. You must be selfless and Christ-like, um, just to give that example. If you're some sort of nonprofit or not-for-profit, all of your motives are um, assumed as the assumption, which can be proven false. Your motives are assumed to be pure. However, once we dive deep into charities, we can see that many can have actually the opposite effect. They can be well-intending, but when you take into cultural differences, being sensitive to the actual root causes and the actual real needs of the people involved, and by real needs, I mean not giving them a pill, not treating systems perennially and forever, um, but actually getting at the core so you can teach a person to fish without having them depend on you for fish. So this is a very um, nuanced area because... I'm just going to give an example when I was in Teach for America. When I was in Teach for America, the vision was generally one day all children will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. But we were very well well aware and the leadership in the organization would say, you know, we've been in this for so long. 
that we can have a conflict of interest. We can actually perpetuate the problem because our job security in Teach for America depends on the problem. If there is no problem of education inequity or inequalities, then we fail to exist. And that's a lot of people's job security, right? And so at least when I was in the core, they would start many presentations off with, we are Teach for America. And one day we hope that we don't have to exist because nonprofits, not-for-profits have this this um, conflict of interest inherently that if they actually solve the problem they are purporting to solve, they will all be out of a job. And that's something that we have to consider um, when we think about, should I choose a for-profit or should I choose a non-profit or not-for-profit? And what is the history of these um, organizations? So a lot of times charity nonprofits, they can have an opposite effect. They can be well-meaning, but actually in fact, negatively impact a group or individual's autonomy, respect, and their individual sovereignty or authority. So I think like, you know, a lot of people talk about the example of religious institutions, religious institutions by nature, um, because they're a nonprofit and they have a quote, charitable purpose, Jesus, Jesus. At the end of the day, if people do not quote, accept Jesus or whatever their, their organs, you know, there's a big world full of people who are non-believers. Um, they will continue to perpetuate that problem of non-believers impliedly because they continue to separate people into us versus them. Because in a church, I'm just talking about Christian church because that's my background. In a Christian church, if there is no us versus them, the church will fail to exist because the division is what keeps them in business. If there's no division, they're no longer in business because there's no good or bad, um, us versus them, non-believers versus believers, finding Jesus versus not finding Jesus. If the Jesus thing doesn't matter and we're just focused on, you know, living life according to principles found in the law and the history and the legal system principles that we as a society, as a collective have agreed upon that these are the ways to live a fruitful, beneficial life and to live in peace with each other. If we keep people focused on the externals and out there on a thing that we can't even prove or see um, or tell the story of Jesus in a certain way, we keep people dependent. We keep the tides rolling in because the pastor of the church, if he doesn't receive your tides, he's out of a job. And a lot of times these people are brought up in seminary and without out of a job, do they, and this is the question, do they have other skill? I'm sure their skill can translate to another industry, but a lot of times these people are brought up in the church and they're just, there's a, again, a conflict of interest. Um, so a lot of times charity, it can be seen as a means of helping, helping people. And they're like, oh, we're acting in selfless service to others when really it could be actually the most selfish thing to be, do because they're focused on the benefit to themselves and how to make themselves feel good, at least for the moment, or have themselves appear a certain way um, versus actually addressing the root cause of the issue. And I mean, it happens to everybody. It happens to me too. I'm not, I'm not you know, exempt from this. And it's something that I had to check for myself when I was in Teach for America. But it's something that I think when we engage in active service to others, asking like, if I if I act in service and I solve the problem, am I going to be out of a job? And if no, okay, that's great. Um, that solves the issue. But if yes, if I solve the problem I'm purporting to solve, will I be out of a job? 
Um, if yes, then you need to have a second, third, fourth in place so that you can address that conflict of interest that inherently resides in being a not-for-profit. So like I take myself, for example, I try to, with Gaia Legal, make sure I don't have that conflict of interest. So, you know, I'm really addressing earth-friendly practices and using small business as a tool to launch local initiatives that address root causes of social global issues. And so I asked myself, okay, if we were to address all the root causes in our community, would I be out of a job? And the answer is no, there's no conflict because you're always going to need communication. You're always going to need agreements between people. We need to document, we need to negotiate, we need to mediate. The skills as a lawyer apply to any situation, regardless if there's conflict or not conflict. So there's great quote job security because no matter what, lawyers are like the grease that fuel the mechanism of society. That fuel the grease that makes the mechanisms of society flow smoothly. And when you don't have lawyers, when you don't have the law, when you don't have institutions, and people are left to their own devices, then chaos, war, conflict, killing murder, stealing, all of these things that we know after thousands of years just don't work, they start happening because there is no law and there is no enforcement of the law. Um, Can the laws be changed and adapted over time? Of course, the law is not perfect and it does not perfectly apply in all situations. But as a general institution, the law exists because people exist and the law will fail to exist only when people fail to exist. So the incentive for lawyers is to make sure that society is at peace. Um, And then you can compare that example to any other example for nonprofit, not for profit. Um, So here are just some examples where uh, I have personally been convicted over time. And I just want to give two. So one is like during the holiday season, there's this organization where you like fill stuff in the shoebox and you like give it to people overseas or you like adopt a child um, overseas. And while that may seem like good and you have like your Instagram photo up and you're like, oh, I'm such a good person because I did fill the box and like sent it. I feel so good. You know, is it really addressing the root issue and the core needs of the people over in, let's just say, the Philippines? That's where my family's from. Or is it really a backdoor way to build quote, trust, give something for free in a community so they become dependent on you because these organizations that fill the boxes, they come with a mission to win people over to quote Jesus, instead of honoring the cultural traditions and the existing existing practices, spiritual practices of, the, of that region, they come and they they colonize, they they bring material, they bring gifts, they bring the material resources that these people may not have. And because they're so overwhelmed with, oh my God, this material resource, then they open up and they like give this message and they're already in that weakened emotional state and they just come in and they all emotion, like, oh my God, um, instead of honoring the traditions and the autonomy of that group of people who may be completely different from us. So even though the intention, you know, I don't think these people go purposefully, like I'm going to colonize this area. The intention is pure, likely, but we have to think one, two, three, four, five steps beyond that and like really examine ourselves and be like, okay, you know, is this addressing a symptom? Sometimes people need us to address symptoms in the short term. But however, how can I leverage my energy to address a root cause here? And so um, that's just one example. Another example, this is a personal example, is when I was in Teach for America. Um, you know, 
I joined Teach for America. I was there in the training first two weeks. Me and a group of other people were like, oh my God, do not drink the Kool-Aid. Like we need to just teach and get out. But you know, when you're so immersed in the organization, you can't help but be like marinated by the Kool-Aid. So here I am, year four, year five, year six, and I'm working at a um, school that was founded by Teach for America alum. And I just felt increasingly convicted that instead of respecting the autonomy, the cultural practices, the um, how families in that community, you know, I lived in an urban community, raised their children, we were there imposing our own values from our own communities onto these children without actually living and inhabiting in the community. I remember me and a group of our teachers there, we were just like, like colonizers. Like here we are complaining about colonization and like we are colonizing these communities. We didn't come from these communities. We didn't, we are, and not that we have to, but even if we don't have to, we're not embedding, we're not living and we're not breathing these communities. Ultimately, the parents of these communities are the experts of their children's education and where they have issues, we can share practices and we can talk about things and offer help if it's requested and welcomed. But to impose our values on this um, community just because we can, because we can invest in the real estate, that to me personally raises a red flag of why one of the huge contributing factors to why I had to leave um, just that environment. I actually left teaching in urban education. I went back and taught in a community that was very like the one I grew up in. Until finally now, I'm actually living in the community where I grew up in and kind of, you know, dealing with those issues real time. How do I do this? Because the other set of issues is you can't help the unwilling. And um, sometimes people just enjoy the lifestyle that they have. And you have to also be okay with that too. And that's just a lesson I'm learning. It's asking the universe, God source, like, where is my place? And so here I am on this podcast speaking to you um, because hopefully you're receptive to at least some of the things that I'm saying, right? So um, yeah, those are just two areas where when I joined Teach for America, I didn't purposely set out to colonize. I didn't purposely set out to impose the values I grew up with on a community that may or may not want those values or disrespecting a community of people whose cultural practice I have no idea um, and not immersing myself in there. But over time, um, as I was more reflective and just, you know, sitting in meditation, sitting in prayer, asking like where are areas where I'm not acting in agreement, acting in alignment, that was revealed to me. Um, And then finally, just one more example is like food aid. If we're giving canned food, okay, great. You could be addressing a symptom of what are the core needs of these people at the homeless shelter. A lot of it's, you know, goes around nutrition and there's a lot of mental health issues, just health issues in general. And when we give canned food, it's like, oh, we have these fundraisers and like it's fun at school. But how are we addressing the root need, the root issues of there's a group of people who are not attached to a family, who are not attached to a tribe? How can we include them in the community? in a meaningful way, in a meaningful way. And there's homeless shelters and things like that. But even I used to work at a homeless shelter when I was in middle school and high school. And a lot of times these shelters can't speak for all because I don't know all shelters, but you get kicked out. Like you get kicked out during the day and you have to like come back and they track you. And then you have to like wait in line. And if it's full, like you can't go. Sometimes you end up on the street and it's just, you know, how are we, how are we addressing this? So it's a huge problem. All we can do is the best we can with what we have. And so all I can speak is on behalf of myself, 
I have this legal knowledge. I have this training, business, tax, estate planning. I see these as legal mechanisms that are very flexible and open to creating the world we want to to live in. They're existing. We don't have to like protest or fight. These have existed for thousands of years. And it's not the tools. It's how we're using them. And when you have a group of people who've used these tools for hundreds of thousands of years and maybe are out of touch with the needs of a, you know, the plight of the lower income or the plight of the underserved or the plight of people who have to start over every generation, don't have generational wealth, can kind of get in a bubble. And they probably don't intend to cause, quote, harm on the lower income, middle income communities. But it's up to us because, you know, we can read, we can write, we can speak, and we can study the law. And a lot of people, um, don't go to law school, but I did. And so here, this is just my contribution um, to whoever's listening. So that if you're listening and you're like, I'm not a lawyer, but I actually have a solution that can address root causes and symptoms, but primarily root causes of a local issue that exists on a global scale, then we could be a great partnership together because I can provide the legal and the business and the tax and <laughs> state planning, and you can provide the actual service to people and we can go from there. And so that is charity. Um, I think in conclusion, it's just to be effective and charitable giving, we have to prioritize and respect the voices of those who we work with. And charity and addressing social issues, yes, they exist on a global scale. And you know, hunger is hunger and education is education. But the treatment of those issues is a very local thing because you're dealing with nuances in people and culture. I just think from where I live now versus where I lived in Texas, it was a similar rural type environment, but the people are vastly different because of the culture and because of the mindsets, because of the churches, because of the, what's going in in the local community. Um, in some Pennsylvania versus in Texas, there's a different type of vibe here when it comes to communicating with people versus in Texas. So it's just, you know, guy legal, we exist to empower people to go into their local communities, address global issues on a local scale. And now let's transfer to um, figuring out how to do that. First by defining nonprofit versus not-for-profit versus for-profit. So I came up with this on my own, but I thought, uh, the US Chamber of Commerce, they researched this, they probably did better. So let's just, I'll just summarize this page for you and point out a few things. So yeah, it says right here, these terms have different implications for your taxes, corporate governance, and business activities. I think a lot of times what we learn in law school and what lawyers can be really good at is determining the quality of a source. There's so much information online, um, but as a lawyer, you're taught to go to the primary source as much as possible. And then if you have to go to a secondary source, make sure it's a reputable one, usually institutional sources. Um, there's a lot of research there's a lot of history there. There's a lot of reputational interest there. So the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, there's a huge interest for them to be accurate. And it's a government, um, it's a government resource. So we need to make sure that we're just not choosing some like random blog. And my job as a content curator is making sure that my audience, at least for me, uses sources that are highly reputable. So the Chamber of Commerce, there's a huge reputation there. Nonprofit, not-for-profit, for-profit. So nonprofit organization, one that qualifies for tax-exempt status by the IRS because its mission and purpose are to further a social cause and provide a public benefit. They include hospitals, universities, national charities, and foundation. So your business must serve the public good in some way. 
and they do not distribute profit to anything other than furthering the advancement of the organization. So all the dollars have to come back into the organization somehow. And the financial and operation information is public so that the donors can see how their contributions are being used. An individual or business that makes a donation to a nonprofit is allowed to deduct their donation from the tax return. The nonprofit likewise pays no taxes on money received through fundraising. So essentially here, the tax code is incentivizing these activities because they provide a public service. And so they want to reduce or eliminate the income tax requirement so that they can um, maximize the use of the dollars that do come in. So that's a nonprofit organization. A not-for-profit organization is one that does not earn profit for its owners. All money earned through pursuing business activities or through donations goes right back into running the organization. So there's there's a closed loop here. However, not-for-profits are not required to operate for the benefit of the public good. A not-for-profit can simply serve the goals of its members. A good example is a sports club. The purpose of the club is to exist for its members' enjoyment. These organizations must apply for tax-exempt status from the IRS, including exemptions from sales tax and property taxes. So tax-exempt, you have to opt into this. Um, This also means that money donated by an individual to a not-for-profit organization cannot be deducted on that person's tax return. So nonprofit is particular charitable causes, hospitals, universities, national charities, foundations that are incentivized by the IRS. And a not-for-profit, you have to apply, and these cannot be deducted by your tax return. So here, the not nonprofit and not-for-profit organizations, the differences are summarized here. Um, nonprofits are formed explicitly to benefit the public good. Not-for-profits exist to fulfill an or- owner's organizational objectives. Nonprofits can have a separate legal entity. Not-for-profits cannot have a separate legal entity. Nonprofits run like a business and try to earn a profit, which does not support any single member. Not-for-profits are considered recreational organizations that do not operate with the business goal of earning revenue. Nonprofits may have employees who are paid, but their paychecks do not come through fundraising. Not-for-profits are run by volunteers. Okay, so nonprofits are granted 501c3 status. Not-for-profits are governed by 501c, but depending on their purpose, they could fall under a different section. For example, and I'll show you the page later, 501c7. Okay, so the first question, if you're transforming a side gig into a small business or you just have a small business and you want to get clearer on this, do I want to be a nonprofit? Do I want to be a not-profit? Do my vision, goals, core values, objectives fall under either of these? If yes, then okay. But if no, or if you have questions, then consider um, a for-profit organization because there are, again, like benefits and um, risks for a for-profit organization. So a for-profit organization is one that operates with the goal of making money. Most businesses are for-profit that serve their customers by selling a product or service. The business owner earns an income uh, from the profit and may also pay shareholders and investors from the profit. So the thing with a for-profit organization is you are subject to the market forces, whereas a non-profit or not-for-profit, you're kind of insulated from that and you're not getting that feedback on what people actually need or what they're transacting in the marketplace for. Um, For example, like if you want to run an online course and you're not getting organic traction and you run a Facebook ad or an Instagram ad or so on and so forth, 
the market's going to tell you very quickly if that's a viable idea or if it's not a viable idea, because it'll either be picked up by people or it won't. Facebook is either going to promote it or it won't. And they're promoting based on the traffic that you're getting um, through the algorithms. Is the algorithm perfect? Likely not. But generally speaking, it works um, to highlight those things that people actually want, not the things that you think people want. Um, okay, so that's a for-profit organization. For any organization, you need an employer identification number, which is FREE-free through IRS.gov. You'll select your tax-exempt status and so on and so forth. Um, all the steps, this is right here, all the steps for creating your entity are the same. Start by filing for a business entity in the state in which you wish to run your operations. Your business entity might be a corporation, LLC, sole proprietorship, or partnership. And here at Guy Legal, we can support you in doing that either standalone or through one of our packages. And so, of course, you can change your legal entity along the way, but you know, you have to do all the paperwork and then message that. Um, and here, from a nonprofit to a for-profit, they give you information here for a for-profit to a nonprofit, and so on and so forth. This heading is it easier to manage a nonprofit or for-profit? Ultimately, you know, <laughs> you have leadership in a nonprofit as a board of directors who gain no financial benefit from the governance role. As the founder, you may be still involved in running the operations of the nonprofit, but the ultimate outcome to ensure the organization meets its missions is actually run by a board. Um, and it can be different. The culture can be different and nonprofit or for-profit. The culture at most for-profit companies are about how to improve sales and profit because you're seeing profit as the quantitative measure of the value of your of the best service that you're providing to the customer or client. Whereas a nonprofit, it is more community-minded. It's very more emotional. Um, and for me, the big con of a nonprofit is that you're not getting that data from the marketplace. You can raise money from charities, but sometimes that could be tunnel vision. And this comes from someone who's worked for many different nonprofits and seen the same pro problem issue come across all of them from churches to education to hospitals, just across the board. If your board of directors is not open-minded and, and open to the changes in the marketplace, you can become extinct or go, you know, uh, lose a lot of members or decrease in charitable giving very, very quickly because you're not adapting to the marketplace. Whereas a for-profit business, because you're so focused on the data coming in from the marketplace, you are able to adapt. And it's more objective in that way because you're just there for profits and the market is the market and so on and so forth. Whereas a nonprofit, it's more of like the mission is first and the market can adapt to our mission for-profit is the market's first and our mission can adapt to the market. So it really just depends which way you want to um, go go at attack attack your service or I don't want to say attack your service, but address the service needs in your community, um, but something to consider. So that is not profit, not for-profit and for-profit. So you can go to irs.gov backwards slash charities and nonprofits to see the different forms here and different educational resources. So you have the five stages in the exempt organization, organization's life cycle. This is an interesting tab um, where you can see how you can start out, then you apply for the exemption. You have to apply. You have required filings, ongoing compliance, and then significant events. 
there are different exempt organization types. So you have the 501c3 organizations that are organized and operated exclusively for religious, charitable, scientific testing for public safety, literary, educational, or other specified purposes. You have a specific churches and religious organization exemption that falls back to the Constitution. You have private foundations, usually from one family or corporation, that primarily make grants rather than directly operate charitable programs. You have political organizations and you have other nonprofits. So that is just charitable giving and nonprofits, not for profits versus for profits at a very high level. And so just to close on an estate planning note, there are many mechanisms in this in the state plan that you can use for charitable giving for our one donor advised funds, two private foundations, three charitable remainder trust and four charitable lead trust. I'll probably plan another episode in the future going into those in more detail, but just at a very high level, um, what's the difference between all of them? Number one, a donor advised funds is a tax efficient way of making a charitable donation they allow individuals to make a tax-deductible contribution to a nonprofit organization. The non-profit donor-advised fund will manage the funds on behalf of the donor. And it's kind of like a third-party market managing your, your giving. And then donors can make contributions when it's most financially beneficial for them. Private foundations, in contrast, are a way of creating a lasting charitable legacy. Setting up a private foundation allows the family or the individual to have more control over the charity his supports. And a lot of times we have massive amounts of money, like for example, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you kind of do your own like in-house research, in-house prioritization. There are pros and cons to that. Obviously, when you have that amount of money, you're very influential. When you start giving to charitable organizations, you can be run by the objectives of your founder uh, funders. Because if you don't fund the charitable organization, the charitable organization ceases to exist. And... Um, that goes back to the whole idea of conflict of interest. If you solve the issue that you um, are in, <laughs> in a charitable organization to address, everybody's going to be out of a job. So we have to consider that when we're making these foundations or different funds. The third option for estate planning, you have charitable remainder trust. It's an estate planning vehicle that allows you to support your favorite charities while also benefiting the estate plan. You can contribute assets, such as stocks or real estate to the trust. And then the trust pays you the, uh, a stream of income for a specific, specified period of time for the rest of your life. And then the remaining assets in the trust are donated to charity. And charitable lead trust is the opposite. So charitable lead is you have payments to a trust, assets to a trust. The payments are first given to charity and the remainder is given to you. So charitable remainder, just like you, <laughs> it sounds, you get paid first, the remainder goes to charity versus charitable lead. Charity gets paid first and the remainder goes to you or your heirs. So that's just a few estate planning vehicles for charitable giving. Um, probably in the future, again, doing a more in-depth episode on each one or those as a separate thing. However, for today, I think that covers the, the main points about charitable giving. In the next couple of episodes, I'm actually going to shift gears a little bit. And we're going to talk about you know what's been given to us from God, universe, source, um, in our personality, in our experiences, in our skill set, how can we use those things and infuse them into our business or to help guide us to the people that we are here designed to serve? And for me, 
Um, I started by taking a lot of psychological tests, personality tests, Myers-Briggs type indicator, until I learned that the Myers-Briggs type indicator, influenced by Carl Jung, um, who was an astrologer. And so when you think, go to the primary source, I had my MBTI and I realized like, oh, this can be very fluid based on, you can kind of transcend personality types. And um, that got me interested in seeing my natal chart and going down that path. So for the next couple episodes, I'm actually going to use, again, the primary source, your natal chart, my natal chart as an example of how to use the planetary archetypes, the symbols, stories, and such associated with the planets to get into agreement with who you are as a person and your essence, and then use that, infuse that into your business and into the services you provide for your community. Thank you so much for tuning in and I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye.